I think simply put, Irish people are frontier people. You know, that's that's just in our DNA. Um, and, and it's, you know, connected to many factors at home, the need to strike out for, for the horizon or for, for bounties afar afield and, and try and bring home something uh, back to Ireland. And, and despite my relatively heavy words around regulation and the need to be more careful, I do think cannabis is one of the most exciting frontiers in the world today. Welcome to a new season of the Digital Irish Podcast, a show about Irish innovation with interviews with entrepreneurs, innovators, creators, global leaders. This show is brought to you by the Digital Irish Network, a not-for-profit organization whose mission is to promote Irish innovation, innovators throughout the world. I'm your host, Dave Byrne. Subscribers to the podcast may remember a couple of months ago, I spoke to Mark Collins. Mark is an advisor and investor in businesses operating within corporate cannabis. After the conversation, I got into a little bit of a rabbit hole researching corporate cannabis myself. And lo and behold, I found that there are Irish people all over the world innovating in corporate cannabis in various different ways. I found this fascinating, so I decided to explore this in more detail, and hopefully many of you will also find this fascinating, especially in an industry which has so many unique challenges and opportunities at the same time. One that's lacking in research also is very heavily regulated at the same time. The conversation in this episode is with somebody who is innovating out of APAC. Beakra Mullen is part of Altum, a group that are looking to create CBD consumer brands. And they actually even opened Asia's first CBD cafe and retail location. What you'll hear from Fiacra is how they are really kind of leaning into the ethical use of CBD, not over glorifying cannabis as a plant, but really kind of focusing on the benefits that people can get out of it. Um, you'll also hear him talk about the unique challenges around regulations and operating out of a location like Hong Kong and what comes with that. It's a fascinating discussion and he even has his own ideas of why Irish people are so involved and innovating in this industry. I found this conversation really, really fascinating. This is going to be the second conversation with somebody working in corporate cannabis. If you enjoyed it, please do let me know. Thank you. Beakra, I want to start by almost setting the scene for a lot of people because I myself have heard a lot of terms like cannabis and hemp and cannabinoids. And I think it's kind of an important thing to do just to kind of understand what each of these actually mean and what are the intoxicating versus the non-intoxicating uh, elements that we deal with. Could you help kind of set the scene for us? Sure. And um, thanks for having me, Dave. It's a pleasure to be here. So when we talk about cannabinoids, I think, you know, classically, we're talking about uh, compounds extracted from the cannabis plant. I think what's interesting to note about cannabinoids is that um, there are many different types and most people don't realize that our body itself actually generates a lot of cannabinoids inside the body. 
So when we talk about cannabis, cannabis or hemp cannabinoids, we're talking about phyto or plant-derived cannabinoids. And when you talk about cannabinoids from inside your body, we're talking about endocannabinoids, cannabinoids that are endogenous to your body. So cannabinoids generally work by interfacing with your endocannabinoid system. And your endocannabinoid system is something that is responsible for regulating your appetite, sleep, stress, mood, and a bunch of other kind of critical aspects of your day-to-day living. And so a lot of people talk about the endocannabinoid system being your body's master control system. So cannabinoids specifically act on the endocannabinoid system and in a way help balance the endocannabinoid system. So in a way, cannabinoids are what help balance what keeps your body in balance, which is the endocannabinoid system. Um, When we talk about cannabis versus hemp, again, most people don't realize that they're actually the same plant at the bottom of it all in terms of the etymology of the plant itself. Um, Cannabis tends to refer to very high THC uh, strains of cannabis, whereas hemp tends to refer to very low THC, CBD-rich strains of of cannabis. Uh, So after cannabis was made illegal or prohibited in many countries around the world after World War II, um, a lot of countries still had a a big use or need for cannabis. And obviously, like industrial hemp is incredibly useful. We get fibers and all sorts of derivative products from industrial hemp. So most countries saw their way to approving very, very low THC versions of cannabis, which became known as industrial hemp. And going forward, those were considered okay for industrial use and high THC, quote unquote, cannabis was prohibited as a recreational drug. That's fascinating then. So when we're thinking of cannabis being the the high THC, and then we've got hemp being the more manufacturing side of things. Like, so when we're thinking about like corporate cannabis, should we actually be thinking more of the, not just the actual cannabis side of things, but more the hemp side of things and like what the benefits that that's offering? I think so. I mean, I think I say traditionally in the last 10 years in particular, corporate cannabis has tended to refer to high THC cannabis cannabis. Um, you know, it's, it's sexier in terms of markets. There's been a lot more money invested into it. At the same time, if you look at, say, a region like Asia Pacific, where we're focused, you have 4.5 billion um, people, a majority of the world's population, and most markets will never allow THC. I say never. Next 10, 15, 20 years, somewhere like China is not going to allow THC for consumers. So I think what we're seeing is a a reframing of the category on a global scale to a cannabinoid category, quote unquote. So it's not really about cannabis. It's not really about hemp. It's about cannabinoids. And depending on the market you're in, some cannabinoids are legal, some cannabinoids are not. But all cannabinoids have some kind of functionality or end benefit. I realize you did ask me about intoxicating versus non-intoxicating. You know, THC is what is most traditionally, you know, referred to when we talk about intoxicating cannabinoids. So, you know, the feeling of smoking cannabis and being intoxicated is is mostly driven by the presence of THC in the cannabis. Um, CBD, on the other hand, is considered non-intoxicating cannabinoid. So when you have CBD, whether it's a small serving or a high serving, you tend to not have a, a change of state of mind to the extent that you're intoxicated. So I think... Well, many people might accidentally say CBD is not psychoactive, which is actually a misnomer. CBD is very much psychoactive. It does cross the blood-brain barrier. Um, you know, something like caffeine, something like sugar, those are all psychoactive as well. Whereas what they mean is it's not intoxicating. 
Okay, I didn't actually realize that because I have I've heard various different things, but that's that's really fascinating. Yeah. And one other thing that I've kind of heard in regards to CBD because it it does have an impact on you, and you were kind of mentioning there about like how cannabinoids can like balance your own cannabinoid system. You know, I I keep on hearing that there's potentially life changing benefits of the CBD industry as a result. Uh, would you be able to kind of give us what may be meant by life-changing benefits? Yes. I'm not sure if, you, if you're if you thinking specifically of some of our materials that when we launched the, um, the CBD Cafe in, in Hong Kong last year, our, our tagline, our strap line was, you know, lose your preconceptions, find a better you, um, discover the life-changing benefits of, of cannabinoids. Um, it is a big claim. Uh, I think given the given how we discussed the endocannabinoid system is responsible for so many um, kind of important aspects of your day-to-day mood and function, I think life-changing benefits uh, more often than not actually tend to tend to be realized. One of the challenges with cannabis, and you know, I've listened to some of the other um, interviews you've done with people in the space, and they reference this as well, is that we we are lacking in research, and that's just a primarily a direct result of a lack of like a, the prohibition and the lack of kind of funded research at a university level and a, and a private level for four or five decades. So almost all of what we know about cannabinoids today is driven by an anecdotal or user-based feedback into brands, businesses like ours. It's a really unusual like outlier as a category in that sense, in that we're starting with the end consumer and we're working backwards in terms of understanding what those benefits are being reported as, whereas most industries are research-driven, production-driven, and then they end up in the consumer's hands eventually. So when customers walk into our cafe or when they buy our brands or when they engage with us on social media, they talk primarily about three main things that they're looking to achieve. Uh, sleep, anxiety, or stress, and pain are the three big benefits that people are looking for when, when they explore the world of CBD in particular. Sleep probably accounts for 75% of that. You can imagine in a city like Hong Kong, it never sleeps, and it's had a very rough couple of years with the protests and, and then COVID. So I'd say about 60 to 80% of our customers are, are interested in some form of sleep benefit. Um, after that, it's a stress or a, an anxiety relieving benefit that they're looking for. And then finally, pain. So pain relief, whether it's applied kind of topically to the skin or taken orally, um, people are looking for pain relief with something like CBD. It, it almost sounds like that a lot of people are are almost like using it for mindfulness. Those kind of things like sleep and de-stressing, those are all things that I imagine that a company like Headspace is kind of promoting that their tools would help with. Yeah, it's, it's almost like a great singularity, you know, across multiple categories. Everyone's focused on ending up in the same place, which is just, you know, an absence of anxiety and some kind of presence of mind, especially with the digital world we live in now. So, I mean, one of our customers put it really well to me a couple of months ago. He was in our cafe and I, I happened to be in the cafe and I, I love chatting to you know customers when I can. And he said for him, it wasn't so much the addition of something when he took CBD, but it was the absence of his stress and his anxiety. And I thought it was quite interesting. A lot of people will look to alcohol or look to traditional cannabis to get that feeling of intoxication, whereas most of our CBD consumers are looking for the removal of background noise, whether it's kind of thoughts about something that's on their mind or just that, you know, low level anxiety that we all kind of walk around with on a day to day basis. And so when you talk about sleep and stress in particular, it's really coming from the same function. So you lie down in bed, you have thoughts racing through your head, 
CBD helps just kind of muffle the noise of those thoughts a little bit and help you get to sleep more easily. It's not that it has a sedating effect. And that's that's why it's quite good for sleep, whereas something like traditional cannabis, I, I talk to a lot of our consumers as well who also say, look, I love the CBD, but I prefer smoking traditional cannabis. And the problem with cannabis is that it is a hypnotic, it is a sedative. And so it might help you fall to sleep more quickly, but you're not getting that restful, restorative sleep where your brain you know, flushes itself and gets ready for the next day. You're getting more of a sedated, um, less kind of replenishing sleep, if that makes sense. Kind of like the way that you would have with alcohol. I know myself, if I have even just a couple of drinks at night, my sleep is noticeably off. I could be in bed for the same amount of time, but not be as rested. And it's tempting because the hard part is getting to sleep, right? That's the bit that most people struggle with. It's the daunting hour or 90 minutes or however long it takes you. And so it's tempting to try to short circuit that, but it is ultimately a bit of a fool's errand, unfortunately. 100%. I actually want to turn because like you've mentioned the cafe a couple of times now, and specifically, I loved one of the things that you said. I know it was in relation to the fact that there isn't much research, but one thing that I thought was interesting was that you said that you're starting with the consumer first and almost working backwards. And I know that you've kind of come from like very consumer led industries before and like very much supply chain focused industries. What kind of overlaps are you seeing in regards to building Altum and like the industry as a whole right now? What kind of differences are you seeing as a result of having to build from the consumer first rather than from solidified research and in some cases, actual proper legislation and regulations around what you're doing? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So, I mean, I think the, the thing that myself and my co-founder Ian um, realized early on, and I drew this from my experience in, in kind of other consumer goods industries was that uh, the earlier years of cannabinoids and um, the ability to access, the ability to produce these products was glorified to quite a high degree. And so you had, you know, I'd say five to 10 years of glorification of investment in, in, you know, cultivation in particular, right? So you had this artificial scarcity where governments mandated that no one do this thing. And then they started slowly opening the tap and allowing, you know, the lucky winners of licenses to start cultivating this kind of, you know, green oil equivalent of, of a crop. Um, that was fine 10 years ago. But like all consumer goods industries, there's always a trend towards commoditization of the production layer. And I think as markets beyond the U.S. have started to produce, so whether it's South America or you know South Africa or Europe, have all started to go into the cannabinoid production game. You know, our theory was that we would not have to invest in cultivation, we would not have to invest in manufacturing because there would be sophisticated, purpose-built partners who could help us do that to a level that we just wouldn't achieve if we started at that stage of the value chain. So I think one of the best things we did was that we decided we would be the pointy end of the stick in terms of Asia-Pacific focus, um, build and put together brands that were resonant for the local consumer with messaging, you know, category cues that were designed for the Asian consumer, and that we would find the right partners overseas to help us produce products to the right specs and you know, F- with high efficacy, et cetera. So I think you know something that a lot of people might not realize is that cannabinoids and cannabis and hemp-derived CBD products, it's rapidly beginning to resemble any traditional consumer goods industry in that you have your you know, um, primary, produ- uh, primary creators, your secondary manufacturers or refiners, and then you have your tertiary groups like ourselves that are doing kind of the end market work uh, with the consumer. 
Um, in terms of challenges, it's actually a really good question. And as, as you spoke, I, I just I realized what the biggest challenge was. Because the research is not in place, we can't talk about those benefits. And that is actually, it might sound like a simple problem, but it's a fundamental one, right? When you bring something to market and you want to explain what it does, you have to be uber careful with your wording, your phrasing, because at the end of the day, you know, it is a food, it is a dietary supplement. It's not a registered medicine. It's not a pharmaceutical product. It's not being prescribed. So we can't talk about anxiety. We talk about stress. That's, a, that's one example of how that kind of being very careful around phrasing uh, manifests. Luckily, we live in a world that's hyper-connected. You know, social media drives most action and consumers are hearing, whether it's from friends or from studying in overseas markets and bringing, bringing the kind of habits and, and new ideas back to Hong Kong and other Asian markets. We don't have to do a huge amount of heavy lifting. I mean, the CBD trend globally has kind of, you know, driven itself. And so our biggest challenge is probably that we have to be very careful in how we communicate the benefits without, without directly labeling them as overt benefits, but encouraging trials so that our consumers and customers can see for themselves that it actually works. That's actually really interesting because... I know that there's so many self-regulatory groups and industry regulatory groups that will kind of take a look at any brands across any industry to make sure that they're not using dubious like medical claims or anything like that. So it's interesting to see that with everything that's happening with the CBD industry, that you you still have these kind of challenges here, which are, I wouldn't say they're, they're challenges that are, you know, easy to overcome like you do need to kind of have all of this research and have all of the the actual the statistical scientific proof behind everything yes and and that's not to say there aren't there isn't a massive tail group of competitors who you know subsequently entered the market behind us and are being much less careful with how they approach you know and, and i think that's something that we just have to live with and we do our best to demonstrate you know, good faith with the Hong Kong regulator, with the Department of Health. Um, I do sometimes worry that there's a there's a large group of competitors in the corner who who are trying to catch up and or you know attract as much attention as we've been lucky to get. And sometimes they do resort to the health claims and and kind of promising the world. So it's something that we're 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 encouraging less of if we can. I think that's quite noble. It's actually kind of important to do is just make sure that you know. The other thing as well is that if hong kong regulators start clamping down on them you can kind of say like hey we're 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 good i actually want to talk about hong kong because one thing i was kind of thinking of was why hong kong like for altum and like for the cafe and why was hong kong the place that this was the best starting point for altum yeah look i i'll be fully honest and, and it's, a, it's a bit of a basket of things you know myself and ian both have a strong history in hong kong um, there's a group of investors and shareholders and board members who are who are in and around the area. Um, so kind of functionally and from a funding point of view and then a base from which to, to build our operations, all of that made sense, all of that aligned. Um, but on the kind of, kind of le legislative side or the market side, funnily enough, Hong Kong is accidentally, we like to say accidentally, the most progressive cannabinoid market in Asia Pacific. Oh, wow. Um, I don't think it was, I don't think it was a deliberate move on the Hong Kong government's part, but they, this is where they've ended up. So, you know, take a couple of comparator markets, for example, just to give a sense, you know, somewhere like New York, where you are, or, or London, UK, if you walk down the street, CBD, there's CBD coming out of 
you know, gas stations coming out of every corner. It's, it's, it's over, overly saturated. And you might assume somewhere like Australia or New Zealand would be similar, just given the kind of cultural proximity and, and how much else is similar between those markets. But Australia, New Zealand, for example, today CBD is still a prescription-only medicine, which might sound crazy to an Irish person, uh, someone from England, someone from the US, but you actually need a doctor to prescribe you CBD in Australia and New Zealand today. If you look north of Hong Kong and China, China's actually just banned CBD from the final category in which it was legal. So skincare and CBD was legal in China until about three weeks ago, and they banned it as of three weeks ago. Um, South Korea is still prescription only medicinal use of CBD. Japan allows CBD, but there is a very strict uh, requirement around the origin and the source of the CBD. It's a very hard standard to meet for most companies. So right in the middle, you have Hong Kong, which aside from the two intoxicating cannabinoids, THC and CBN, uh, all other cannabinoids are legal in this market as a food. And then when you look at the kind of cultural, you know, it's, it's cliched in many ways, but the melting pot of kind of East meets West and a very international audience and one, you know, a base from which we felt we could do a lot of education in the region. Uh, Hong Kong, for all those reasons, felt like the right place for us to, to begin, you know, seriously our commercial uh, operations. And for the commercial operations in particular, the cafe that you have, the Found Cafe, it's almost a year old now. Firstly, happy anniversary in advance. But in in how do you actually like launch something like a cafe, and what ways do you kind of navigate those challenges of like, well, we have to be very careful about how we promote it, but we also want to make sure that people understand what we're actually offering. Yeah, and and it's I guess I should clarify that before opening the cafe, we did have six months of of product activity in the market, so. At the very beginning of 2020, we were lucky to have just wrapped up about 12 months of supplier evaluation, product development. Our first raft of products had just shipped. And so in January 2020, we launched a classical series of CBD products. So anyone on anyone listening to this will be familiar and who's familiar with CBD will understand the you know CBD oils and capsules and bands, like very, you know, very, very much par for the course. And for a couple of months, we ran with that product range and we were getting a little bit of traction in the market, but it did feel like we weren't reaching the masses. We then launched a series of kind of business operator targeted CBD brands. And these are, you could, you could, I guess, um, compare these to something like Impossible Burger. So, very, you know, targeted at cafes, bars and manufacturers who wanted to integrate CBD to their products and to their services. And that did relatively well, but COVID kept it quite suppressed, unfortunately. And I think right around, you know, April of 2020, we realized that there was a lack of a consumer facing education effort in Hong Kong and that somebody, some group, some, some business needed to take the first step in the market of putting their head above the parapet and having a direct relationship with consumers in a very public and serious way. So cafe as a, as a concept sounds quaint. I'm sure people are listening to this and saying, why are we listening to someone talk about opening a cafe? It's just, this isn't a good use of my time, but I think the cafe could be probably better described as a, as a retail initiative disguised as a cafe in that when you walk in, there's no mention of cannabis. There's no, there are no pictures of cannabis leaves. You know, as a first step, we did not want to alienate the government, the regulator, nor the relatively conservative older demographic in the market. Um, 
side note, this is still a market in which if you're traveling on the subway, you'll see anti-cannabis posters warning you not to smoke cannabis. So we are in a very interesting place where we're trying to launch something that's cannabis derived and we have these kind of government driven anti-drug campaigns still very much in the public eye. So I guess the, the, the key work done before the cafe launch was, was obviously the product supply side that I mentioned, but more importantly, the legal work we did around being confident in putting our head above the parapet. And to be fully honest, for about two weeks after we launched, I was, I was going to bed every night, fully expecting the next day to be the day that I, I got a call and or somebody came to the cafe to have a, a serious conversation with me about the legal status of it. But luckily, we had good lawyers. Luckily, we were on the right side of the law. We, we got everything correct. And the government are really happy with how we're running it because while there are head shops hidden away in Hong Kong City, you know, in little malls and, and up on the 20th floor of buildings, uh, which glorify the consumption of cannabis, we have taken the opposite approach where we've actually made it a conversation about CBD and wellness, and we've really taken the cannabis out of the conversation, and, and they like to see that. Since launch, you've mentioned that other, you know, there's obviously other players in the market, but like you kind of touched on it there where the government's been happy with you, like you're kind of approaching this in the right way. How has the last year gone since? Are you seeing similar cafes trying to replicate your success and replicate what you're doing? Are you finding that there's a lot of attention on you still or what's been happening? Yeah. And I think, look, CBD as a trend globally is bigger than any one group, any one person, any one initiative or project. Um, it's, it seems inevitable on a market by market basis that consumers will get access to this eventually, and then they'll demand it in, in time. I think in Hong Kong, that trend was coming. I mean, it's too international. It's too you know, cosmopolitan a city in terms of the makeup of its population for it to, to take you know, too long. But I think what Hong Kong needed was a prism through which the conversation could begin in earnest. And after we opened the cafe within three to four weeks, we were very fortunate to hit mainstream press in Hong Kong across the board, you know, series of video interviews and you know, written articles and all of the lifestyle blogs in the city talking about this CBD cafe that had opened up in a leafy pedestrianized, you know, hidden away part of Hong Kong. And we had queues at the door, you know, even at the height of summer, which is quite unbearable in Hong Kong. And then it snowballed into international coverage and before we knew it, I think within eight weeks, 10 weeks, we had Associated Press um, come to do a day's shoot and interview at the cafe. And within two weeks, we were appearing in Washington Post and Sky News and, you know, the Hindu Times and uh, Asahi, you know, the Asahi Shimbun in Japan. So it, it was a whirlwind of a three months. And, you know, for us, it, 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 our biggest goal is to push forward the conversation around cannabinoids to, to demystify and to destigmatize. And we were we were very lucky that we got that initiative right and it resonated. And yeah, there's been a ton of um, I guess fast follows in terms of competitors and those looking to to imitate. And I think some have done a good job. Some have taken something and and done it in a novel way and added to what we've done. And, and there have been those that have tried to replicate it directly and maybe not been as successful. But we've um, we're really happy with the last year and we we have plans for Fand as a brand that are beyond the cafe nothing i can talk about publicly at this stage but we do think it'll be quite exciting what we bring next in terms of innovation that's awesome to hear and excited to see what happens next as you're just talking like one thing that you know you keep on saying is that you wanted to push the conversation forward you want to move things forward i actually want to take us back 
a bit because I can tell just just by your talking, you're exceptionally passionate about what you do. You're exceptionally knowledgeable. But I, I want to uh, take you back to almost like the time when you realized that this was an industry that you wanted to get involved in, that you wanted to step foot in. What was it that initially attracted you to the CBD industry? Yeah, well, I've, I've always been passionate about cannabis um, ever since I first tried it, really. And um, I was lucky enough to try it when I was well into my 20s. And, and maybe, if, if you don't mind, before the end of the chat, we can touch on why I think that was lucky uh, from my perspective. But you know, I've, I've made a, a lot of personal breakthroughs and professional breakthroughs through the use of cannabis. Um, some people don't, I mean, a lot of people who don't use cannabis very regularly don't necessarily appreciate the, the primary benefit, I think, from my perspective. And, and aside from physical relief and, and helping with inflammation, there's, there's a reason we prescribe it to those suffering from terminal illnesses and those with lifelong debilitating diseases. One of the biggest things that cannabis does is that it plays with the novelty factor of our minds. And as humans, we're exceptionally uh, gifted at stripping away novelty and sensory overload from our everyday lives. So as you take the same route home every day from work to your apartment or to your house, the trip starts to feel shorter and shorter over time. Before you know it, you leave work and before you know it, you're home. And that's because if we were to continually always be bombarded by the sensations and the, and the information that our body is processing, our mind is processing, it would be overwhelming for us, especially in today's world. So what cannabis does is that it actually resets somewhat the novelty factor and allows you to experience things again maybe from a first principles perspective or as if you were seeing it for the first time. And so a lot of, a lot of individuals, a lot of people will credit cannabis with insights or breaking through creative blocks or figuring out something about their lives that wasn't clear to them until that moment. And I find it very useful for me in that regard. So that was around eight, nine years ago, I started to, to use it kind of relatively carefully to achieve those goals, obviously as a recreational um, drug, it can be quite good. And alcohol, while prevalence often leaves you with you know a worse hangover or with worse consequences than something like cannabis. Um, and then in between then and now, I was really fortunate to develop a set of skills in startup mode, building products, working with co-manufacturers to bring brands to market. And when I met my co-founder, Ian Alexander, we both realized that in Asia Pacific, there would be this big opportunity to bring cannabinoids back to these markets and that our skill sets were really well aligned. So I guess that's how I end up here today, you know, sounding relatively passionate about something like, like cannabinoids and um, Asia Pacific. You talked about you were lucky that you had your experience in, the, in your 20s. I'd love for you to give us a little bit more insight into that. Sure. Um, well, there's a, there's a couple of things you know, that that's wrapped up in, um, you know, until, until our early twenties, or I think some people would argue until your mid twenties, our brain is still developing. And in terms of brain plasticity is quite high until our early to mid twenties. And so, uh, I was lucky to only start using cannabis kind of semi-regularly in my twenties when my brain was well-developed, not that plastic anymore, and thus not susceptible as susceptible to being changed significantly by the use of cannabis. Uh, whereas some people who experience cannabis quite early in their teens, for example, struggle 
struggle with cannabis dependency, but also find that their brain chemistry is altered significantly in kind of critical formative years by something like cannabis. And maybe we can touch on the fact that cannabis of today is much different from cannabis of 40 years ago. And so if you combine, you know, a young, relatively fragile, still developing brain with a, a much more powerful cannabis than even 30, 40 years ago, I think that's quite a dangerous combination and something that we need to be quite careful with. I mean, I know this isn't your industry, so to speak, when we think of the more intoxicating side of things. But like, you know, one thing that I was talking to Mark Collins with, we did a podcast with him previously, was that he was talking about this almost like race to the bottom, where people are trying to make the intoxicating versions more and more powerful as yes. like almost like a unique selling point. Uh, and I mean, just before diving into that, actually, it's, it's important to clarify, we are actually just about to begin um, importing and selling medicinal cannabis in Australia. So that will be a high THC product under the Autumn um, banner. But yeah, there, there's a bit of an arms race at the moment. And, and I think I am all for cannabis deregulation and I'm all for improving access to cannabinoids, whether it's through intoxicating or non-intoxicating formats. Um, I do think, I'm not sure if you ever heard the expression, like, this isn't our parents' cannabis. It's, it's thrown around a little bit in the cannabis industry from time to time, but we often refer to the benefits of cannabis, but, you know, by using or anchoring our reference to the cannabis of the 60s and 70s. And you might hear somebody of an older demographic say, look, back in my day, we were smoking joints all day and we just passed them around and nobody ever had any problems. And the problem, the reason for that is that the cannabis of the 60s and 70s does not resemble very much the cannabis of today. And what's happened in between is that we've gone through four to five decades of prohibition. And in prohibition, the incentives change in the wrong direction. So suddenly you have groups who want to bring something like cannabis to market in a black market way, but they're limited in how much they can bring to market. So they have a quantity restriction around you know, how much they can smuggle over borders or, or bring through supply chains without getting caught. So the incentive is actually to breed strong THC variants of cannabis with other strong THC variants of cannabis. And over time, over three to four decades, we go from what might have been a 6% THC flower, for example, in the 60s, to 20 to 30% THC flower of today. So if I go into a dispensary in the US, I can choose from up to a 30 or 30% plus THC flower, which based on that example, which is a relatively representative example, might be five times stronger than something smoked in the 60s, you know, by a group sitting together. And it's not just the difference in the strength of the flower, but it's how hyper-optimized the delivery formats have become. So the idea of an e-cigarette where there was one gram of you know, super concentrated THC distillate sitting in a pod that could be charged and then puffed 300 times without stopping would have blown the minds of somebody in the 60s or 70s rolling a, a joint. You know, every time you roll a joint, it's, it's quite time consuming and, you know, you only have so much flour and by the time it gets passed around, half of it gets burnt in the process before someone's inhaled it. So we live in a world today where we've created machines that can deliver THC at high concentrations with high speed. And so while I'm all for deregulating cannabis, I do think we need to have a more sensible conversation about how we do it, because you look at something like the tobacco industry from the mid 20th century, we look back at some of the practices of the tobacco industry today and we say, wow, how did we think that that was okay? You know, doctors were telling people that it was okay to smoke. 
or we look at the alcohol industry from three decades ago and we say, wow, like the glorification of alcohol consumption was really something, wasn't it? And I do feel like we're sleepwalking a little bit into making our generation's version of that same mistake with cannabis. Um, so that's not a conversation I hear often enough in the cannabis industry, unfortunately, because there are conferences and there are people raising money and there are massive valuations and there are, you know, legacy players like Constellation Brands taking stakes in, you know, the up and coming companies in this new sector. And there's a very, very small conversation happening in the corner around responsible legalization or something like this, uh, especially something that can bring psychosis and schizophrenic, you know, negative outcomes, which, you know, compared to alcohol, you might have physical problems and, you know, body related issues later in life, but, uh, breaking the wrong direction mentally for somebody who might be predisposed to something like schizophrenia can often be something that can't be come back from. So a little bit of a heavy note there for me, apologies, but I, I do think it's a, it's a significant thing. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating to be honest, because you know, you, you keep on saying deregulation, but you're not saying no regulation, which I think is an important differentiator. Like alcohol is more deregulated than cannabis is, but it's still regulated. It's still a case of you can't sell certain alcohols over a certain percentage proof, like that kind of thing. Uh, It's fascinating to hear because I think like with all of this investment and everything else right now, it almost feels like that a lot of people could potentially be burnt if they potentially overinvest in companies that don't take into consideration these kind of aspects that you and Altum are taking into consideration. What is not only a good industry and a good direction for the industry, but what is actually beneficial to the end user at the end of the day? The most ethical way of approaching this as well. Ethical and ethics, that's a great word to throw in, Dave. I think everything we do should be, should have good ethical underpinnings. You know, it's a very lofty statement and I don't always, I often don't, you know, manage to conform to that type of aspiration. But a good example would be something like Canada. When Canada legalized cannabis, they did so in a way that a lot of companies were angry with the government for doing where dispensaries needed frosted glass windows and packaging could only have one color and one logo and had to bear a health warning. And you couldn't use lifestyle marketing to sell products. And this kind of, it, it highlighted or brought into contrast perfectly the juxtaposition between you know, corporate interests and the profit motive and public health and an ethical approach, as you say, to legalizing something like cannabis where you can't really make an argument for being allowed to use sex to sell cannabis because ultimately that is something that will sway consumers younger than it should, but also a broader swathe of consumers than it should into doing something like consuming cannabis. And so I think Canada has actually taken a brave approach with legalizing it that way. Whereas south of Canada in the US, you know, lifestyle marketing in cannabis is, is the only approach to selling the category. And so where this all unfolds remains to be seen. I'll continue to lobby for responsible and ethical deregulation. And I think, um, I think in the long term, we will all look back and we will know that that was the right, the right way to do it. Whether we do it that way between now and then it remains to be seen. I, I like that term, the responsible and ethical deregulation. I think that's a great way of, of, of summing that up. And I think that's something that, you know, even the, uh, biggest proponents of like cannabis couldn't argue against. Fantastic. 
want to kind of pick your brain about something because it's something that I've found quite fascinating and the source of why I've been doing this series of podcasts about the industry is that I am I'm finding Irish people everywhere in this industry across multiple different continents countries you're based in Hong Kong you've got we've got people based in California and Canada in Australia in in the UK and Ireland itself as well you know what is it about this industry that seems to be attracting so many Irish people it's a good question and and funnily enough i i you know the biggest industry i was involved in for the longest period of time before cannabis was travel retail or duty free and uh, it's it's equally dominated as well travel retail even more dominated by irish uh, and and they punch massively above their weight within that sector as well so for me kind of the two main industries duty free and cannabis have, have felt very represented uh, internally by by irish so it's not so strange to myself but you are right. I think, uh, and I, I have to admit, unfortunately, I've been relatively hyper-focused on Asia-Pacific, so I'm very familiar with the Irish in the industry and, and know some of them quite well. I would love to be more involved in the, the Irish you know, cannabis conversations. I think, simply put, Irish people are frontier people. You know, that's, that's just in our DNA, um, and, and it's you know, connected to many factors at home, the need to strike out for for the horizon or for for bounties afar field and and try and bring home something uh, back to Ireland and and despite my relatively heavy words around regulation and the need to be more careful I do think cannabis is one of the most exciting frontiers in the world today um, I would put it up there with climate and I would put it up there with something like Bitcoin and um, all really important topics um, my personal way of thinking about it is something like you know, cannabis enables us to open the mind uh, to see that things like climate, you know, proactive work around climate are important and also proactive work around sound money, something like Bitcoin are important. And so it's a, it's something that helps us fix the filters that we have draped over us. But uh, I continue to bump into really fascinating Irish people in the space. And I'm less and less surprised every time I get introduced to somebody over email or I end up on a call with, with an, an impressive Irish counterpart that's also pushing the industry forward in some exciting way on the other side of the world. So I, uh, I just expect that trend to continue, to be honest. And, and the cannabis conversation in Ireland, although it has been slow, I do think that it's beginning to uh, move through the gears um, at a not not necessarily at a national level yet, but I do think the industry in Ireland is beginning to find its footing, and there's a sensible conversation emerging about it, which is quite exciting. That is pretty exciting, and it's funny that you mentioned climate and Bitcoin. Those are also two industries that we'll be looking at on the podcast as well, because again, there seems to be Irish people all over all over those industries as well. So I definitely hear you when you say that it's a it's a frontier piece. Uh, you know, one thing, one thing I, I, I want to close out with is like, uh, you've kind of touched on it throughout like our chat, thinking about expanding and uh, the cafe, uh, the cafe brand and the brand itself. What's kind of like the immediate focuses for you and what can we expect to hear more about or, or how much can you actually tell us anything that you can tease right now? Yeah, look, my, my, my immediate focuses are around deepening kind of education efforts with Hong Kong market in particular and, and deepening uh, access for Hong Kong audiences. So you know, one of the one of the challenges we face in this industry here is that 
despite a year of successful operation for us in in our in our efforts cafe and and there are multiple other brands in the market there is still a top tier of corporate um kind of i guess uh, commercial interest in the in the market that's hesitant still to touch this this space and one of the reasons for that is sensitivity around thc so we're working on some exciting kind of guaranteed thc free initiatives uh, for our products in the market to to really finally entice some of the big conglomerates and, and other groups in the market um, to engage more fully with the cannabinoid category. In terms of fans, I continue to get asked when we're going to open our second cafe. I, I actually couldn't think of anything more boring than extending it in a Starbucks-like fashion you know, to, into a second and third cafe, but, but we will be extending it. And I guess you know you can read between the lines and that there will be an extension of it. And I do believe it's really innovative and exciting. And, and I, I hope everyone feels the same way when they finally see what we decide to do. Um, and then, as mentioned earlier in the conversation, we're about to bring some high THC flour into Australia for medicinal patients. And we're aiming to disrupt the what feels like a, a lot of price collusion and relatively high um, price gouging by current players in the market. And so we will be aiming to be super competitive there and, and make it more kind of democratic and improve access for patients uh, where it's still quite expensive as a medicine. Um, and then, yeah, beyond Australia, Hong Kong, we're exploring other markets in the region. So for every example of a market that retrenches one degree, like China, with its ban of a few weeks ago, there's another market that's becoming more progressive, opening its mind and beginning to appreciate that there might be benefits here for its population. So we have a couple of targets uh, in the next six to 12 months. With the digital Irish audience here listening to this podcast, is there anything that this audience could help you with or any advice that you would offer for this uh, for anybody listening in that's like, how can I get involved in this industry? Sure. I mean, I'll take the second part of that question first. Um, to echo my earlier point around this industry not being that different to most others, I, I think um, don't let uh, the publicity, the press releases, the hype around regulation and licensing uh, deter you. If you have a skill set and you have passion and you have energy and you have interest, you know, reach out to myself or reach out to one of the other hundred um, innovative companies in this you know uh, sector around the world and, and knock on their door and, and tell them what you're good at and ask them if they have a a need for someone to do that thing. Um, and, and you'd be surprised. It's growing rapidly as an industry and that necessitates skills, uh, skills and resource, resource search. And that's happening right now in a big way within this sector. So I think anyone who's interested in getting involved, it's, it's a growth sector and therefore there is opportunity. So, so um, and maybe attached to that, you know, because I'm always happy to give advice. If there is anyone listening to this, particularly from the Irish side of things, uh, whether they want to discuss cannabis personally and just you know have a chat about you know the the non um commercial side of it or whether they want to discuss business and opportunity and, and maybe potential collaboration just simply reach out um, i don't have anything in mind that I, I could do with in terms of favors from that group but I'm, I'm always interested in talking to people i do my best to answer uh, all messages on on the likes of linkedin thanks dave thanks for having me it's been a pleasure who, who thinks it'll be worthwhile Love it. And uh, hopefully we'll have some people reach out to you that you can have some great conversations and potentially meet even more people involved in the industry as well, uh, pushing it forward. Fiercra, I can't thank you enough for taking out the time. I know time zone wise as well, I'm taking up like your evening. So I appreciate you taking a night out to talk to us. I can't thank you enough again. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. 
And that is it for this episode. Many thanks again to Fiacra Mullen for taking the time out to talk to us about the work that he's doing with Altum. Really fascinating to hear about the opportunities and the challenges. And we hope that you, the listener, enjoyed this as well. If you did, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. If you're interested in learning more about Digital Irish or checking out some of our previous episodes, do go on to digitalirish.com. And you can also reach out to us at hello at digitalirish.com if you have questions or if you enjoyed this episode and want to give us some feedback. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, thank you.